0: Hello and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call,
1: all participants will be in listen-only mode. And just to remind you, this conference call is being recorded. Today, I'm pleased to present Charles Priddo and Simon Webber. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much, Operator, and hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Hugely appreciated, as always, Uh, and whether you're listening live or whether you're listening via the podcast. Delighted to welcome Simon Weber from the Global Equity team uh, here today. Simon, great to have you again. And uh, Simon, of course, has uh, responsibility for, amongst other things, global climate change uh, and the EFA book, um, but also we will be picking up some of the threads of uh, the last conversation that I had with Alex Tedder um, uh, in this format a few weeks back. Um, Simon, before we get into it, I'll just do a very quick kind of um, uh, context setting, given the week that's uh, that's passed. Um, so first of all, from an economic standpoint, uh, I just want to hone in on the PMIs, uh, purchasing manager indicators, um, where the composite that's services and manufacturing uh, for the US that's increased um, uh, to uh, 54.6, um, which uh, is you know pretty. Um, uh, pretty stable and shows ongoing expansion, which fits with what Keith has been saying um, from an elongation standpoint. Uh, and then particularly wants to call out the improvement in China um, with a noticeable pickup at the end of Q1. And I think that the market has definitely been reassured by that um, with their composite uh, index uh, manufacturing and services hitting a seven-month high, um, again, in solid expansion territory at for those of you who really follow these kinds of data. Um, And sort of anecdotally, uh, a pickup that we've also seen in China uh, in auto sales. And I call out auto sales because, of course, uh, China um, sneezing in terms of auto sales has meant that Germany, especially, has caught quite a severe cold uh, in terms of the transmission there, where the PMI data coming out of the Eurozone continues to be pretty weak. Um, with the exception of the uh, services PMI, which has started to pick up, uh, which is good, but manufacturing is still, um, uh, still below 50, so in contraction territory, and that's why you're seeing a lot of chit-chat about Germany flirting with recession, etc., etc. But I think with that Chinese uh, data, uh, certainly Azad's view uh, is that we should see some stabilization emerging in the European data, um, and therefore his slightly non-consensus view um, that we'll see a stabilisation stroke improvement in data, because at the moment the consensus, uh, generally speaking, is that um, you know, Europe uh, is very difficult and therefore um, under own, which is something we'll return to uh, in our conversation. From an equity market standpoint, with, with Simon here, um, just scanning kind of year-to-date market returns um, in anticipation of this, uh, you know, just very simply... Uh, last week has continued to reflect um, further progress, um, such that now, uh, one week into April, um, the S&P 500 um, is up over 15% on a year-to-date basis, a a very strong start, and mirrored really across the board um, with uh, the major markets, uh, Japan, if you like, Topics Index, being quote-unquote the laggard, uh, being up a measly 8.5%. So a very firm uh, equity uh, rebound That we've seen post uh, to very uh, sharp falls that we saw in Q4 of last year. But now we get to the point where uh, the S&P 500 is flirting uh, with an all-time high to put that into context. So, Simon, with that that as backdrop, when I met with uh, Alex a few weeks back, he called out um, the kind of uh, softening rhetoric from central banks um, and the alleviation of trade tensions as being the kind of fuel that was really driving equity market returns um, and changing um, sentiment. And, you know, i picked out one quote from President Trump last Thursday when talking about China um, and the trade conversations. Um, he said, quote, we have a ways to go, but not very far. Um, so continuing to sort of fuel that. And in the meantime, overnight, I heard on my radio um, that uh, he's now got the EU potentially in his sights. And, and this, I think, is all good kind of pre-election stuff, probably. Mm. So um, it seems that a lot of, of the way the world is going is rests on one central question, which we can then pick up in more detail, which is, are we going to achieve for the world trading terms or not? So maybe um, can we begin with, from an equity investor standpoint, your perspective on the U.S. and China? Mm. Um
0: well, I certainly agree with that you know, scene setting. And you know, we were saying from the middle of last year that we felt the trade tensions and, and potential resolution or otherwise between the U.S. and China was probably the most in, becoming the most important factor for business confidence um, and the equity markets if the U.S. and China fail to be on good trading terms and we have some kind of deglobalization, it'll be very bad for profit margins. And that's what the market got very worried about in the fourth quarter. So it's not surprising that we've had a quite a strong rally, almost kind of reversing those concerns as the the feedback from those trade negotiations has improved. And it seems like the US and China are now close to some kind of deal. Um, so, you know, we think that that's kind of accurate, and we certainly feel that there is pent-up demand now from businesses that have been holding back investment and consumers, particularly in Asia, who are very concerned about um, the employment situation and the threat of a a much more aggressive America towards China, such that if there is a good deal, there will be this release of pent-up demand.
1: And from a market standpoint, how much of that, if you like, renewed energy optimism that could come from um, a deal priced in, or do you think there's further upside?
0: I, th- I think we'd say quite a bit has been priced in. The market's been quite efficient at looking for, well, reading what's going on in those negotiations. However, things do need to improve. For example, Frank, former um, one of our portfolio managers, was in Asia two weeks ago, and he came back saying, in in the last ten years, he's never had so many companies talk about a second half weighted year. So, kind of management's are, are really clinging on to the hope that things will improve, whether we talk about smartphone sales or just business investment, China trade. So it does need to happen, but we also feel quite strongly that there is this pent-up demand. You can just look at the investment decisions being placed on hold or Chinese consumption data that has weakened while these trade tensions have been ongoing. So it seems. Logical to think that there would be an improvement. There are good reasons to believe that. But it does need to happen if we're going to meet earnings expectations. For this but are
1: those, so to drill into it a bit more, is that kind of pricing in even across all sectors or have some sectors, if you like, may, you know, traded more confidently in anticipation than others? I'm particularly thinking about the more cyclical components of the market.
0: Yeah. So there's been a clear, this year, a clear reflation in China-associated assets both traded in the region, but also if you look at things like some of the luxury goods companies in Europe um, with exposure to China. But but very much
1: towards consumption rather than the, you know, in the past when we're talking about Chinese-induced demand, it tends to be more the kind of commodity-oriented end to the market. And that, as far as I'm aware, I mean, Australia, for example, has underperformed a global benchmark. Yes, absolutely. So I think
0: that kind of more infrastructure and commodity-related areas have not rebounded. Certainly, European cyclicals have not rebounded in the way that um, some of these Chinese consumption associated areas have.
1: Right. And so, from a, a growth perspective, would you expect that um, trajectory of performance to continue, or do you think that there is scope for the more, how can I put it, old fashioned commodity infrastructure related? cyclical assets, you know, heavy machinery that Germany, for example, will be exposed to, mm. um, to see that recover or, or not? Yeah,
0: I mean, we, we're certainly thinking about that a lot. Uh, to your opening
1: preamble around
0: the the, P, the, the purchasing manager indices, you know, they are have, have come down, really 12 months of declining manufacturing PMIs. That's critical for these cyclical sectors like banks and autos and, and bits of industrials and chemicals. If we are now at a trough and we can get Chinese and European manufacturing PMIs ticking back up again to, to, to get closer to all services PMIs, then those areas of the economy could do quite a bit better. Um, that's not to say that good disruptive growth companies won't continue to flourish. We think they'll do really well. But so it has a
1: secular story there. Yeah,
0: that that remains intact, but perhaps there's some catch-up to come from some of these more Traditional, economically sensitive areas.
1: And in that in that vein, what kind of um, companies are you looking at to give you a sort of um, uh, early insight into whether or not that transmission mechanism is is uh, coming through?
0: Um, autos, short cycle industrial markets. Um, you know, we, we we look very closely at some economies like Korea. Um, but within Europe, sticking with Europe for a minute, um, you know. Good example would be a ball bearing company called SKF. Their product goes into autos but all kinds of industrial machinery, um, and it's operating, it's not just capital investment, it's operating expenditure that drives their sales. Ironically, um,
1: I mean, given it's doing ball bearings, it is literally a kind of you know motion surf study of, of, uh, of prospective demand,
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know, that, that if you know anyone wants to look up SKF, their fundamentals haven't really changed, they're probably going to have a first court week, first quarter. But the market's beginning to look through that now, you know we and on the basis that there will be some resolution between the u s and China, we can expect um, slightly better second half for them and, and 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 those kind of stocks will be early temperature checks as to whether things are improving for that more traditional side of the economy
1: and then you you alluded a moment ago to the consumer aspect to this. We talked about kind of the capital investment cycle and kind of waiting sort of clarity in terms of the trade dynamic before having the confidence to invest. But um, you you touched on the fact that, um, and and maybe I can weed the dreaded word Brexit into this, that there's a level of impact on consumer sentiment as well from this uncertainty.
0: Yeah, there absolutely is. So, you know, the uncertainty around Brexit, the uncertainty in in Europe from various political... um, turmoil um, or complexity and and the uncertainty around trade. So markets hate uncertainty. We saw that last year in emerging markets, and, and it's no surprise to us that Brazil is now one of the best performing equity markets because that uncertainty cleared after their election. And and, and I personally think that Brexit and, and the trade situation could be very similar as that uncertainty clears one way or another. Markets can then price things more effectively. Companies can invest um, do business with each other, knowing what the outlook is. And that's normally quite good. So, for example, we have been taking the plunge in, in some of our portfolios buying Lloyd's Bank. I mean, it's you can't get more geared into the UK domestic economy than that. Right. But we are now close to that point of maximum uncertainty. And as the uncertainty clears, we think.
1: Even though talk today, of course, is I think Donald Tusk has come up now with the new word of flex tension. Um, sorry hideous language, but um, i.e. an extension, and who knows exactly, we'll know about this in the next 24, 48 hours as to how long this extension is going to be. But potentially, um, we could be looking for up to a year now of further uncertainty.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be prepared to own uh, these kind of stocks for longer than a year, and that's the basis on which we'd be doing it. Um, But it seems clear to us that a hard no-deal Brexit is not going to happen. And, and therefore, and therefore, you know, any of these other scenarios, the clearing of uncertainty can be okay for some of these domestic cyclicals. No one owns UK equities uh, outside of the UK, really. Yeah. A big statement, but yeah, you know, there's just well, a very easy area to
1: under, to, to yeah. not be invested. In. It's too complex for, for um, non UK um, people to worry about. Right, there's a sort of different level of you know, risk that can be taken elsewhere for a better return potentially. Um, So that leads neatly on to kind of positioning. Um, uh, So I think I'm hearing you say that the kind of secular disruptive winners, thinking particularly around technology, the team remains biased towards those.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Um, Selective looking at um, the more cyclical value elements, if you like, the SKS, the Lloyds of this world in different dimensions, be it industrial, be it consumer. Um, If we were to kind of... Swift, uh, Swift. why should I say that? If we were to um, uh, shift, as what I was trying to say, shift our perspective um, onto, on, onto markets from a, a more regional standpoint, I know that's not necessarily part of the team's process,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but from a regional standpoint, where do you see risk and opportunity at this point?
0: Um, I think we generally view U.S. equities as a fully priced relative to opportunities elsewhere.
1: Because we've got the U.S. earnings season about to start, I think, in probably in a week's time. We'll get Alcoa or whatever the normal you know, lead-off is. Yeah. Um, and the year-on-year comps are going to be pretty difficult.
0: Yeah, they absolutely will. I mean, all the tax uh, cuts to the anniversary, the U.S. economy has slowed down. Um, wage costs are going up. So yeah, we, we you know, the, the, the medium-term concern we have, the it's The largest is really corporate profitability in the U.S., but not just in the U.S. Um, it's been a really good period for corporate profitability, and there are a number of pressures on that. And valuations, particularly the U.S., bouncing back so strongly, are, are full. They're not egregious. In fact, there has been a good de over the last year, but they're still not as attractive as were things to improve in Europe and to get a proper... Lead indicator upturn in activity upturn in Europe, then there's lots more valuation support to, um, to allow a rally to go further in a region like. Because Europe. bluntly, there's a
1: lot less optimism priced in, yep. um, and I think you were um, saying when we were chatting before that uh, the general sense is that Europe, in the eyes, for example, of a US investor, um, is pretty underowned.
0: Yeah, it's underowned. Um, people worry about. Italy, the debt situation, the political situation, the yes, European, European Union doesn't look joined up, Brexit, um, of course, no one understands why the UK would want to leave the yeah. um, the trading bloc. And so you, know, you just don't allocate towards European equities to the same extent. So whenever I go to the US, US clients, I'm you know, asked about all of these macro issues all the time. So if those get less complex or less bad, then there's potential for quite a lot of money to flow back into Europe.
1: Right, and what about just to completing the picture in terms of um, uh, the global lens on Asia? And, and dare I say Japan, which, you know, um, everyone's always saying to me is the most wonderful value stock in isolation. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, Japan looks really cheap. Um, we've probably been
1: moving more underweight Japan
0: as we've... Um, the, it's almost like a bifurcated market. There's a few really good growth companies that have done quite well and looking quite expensive, and those ones, uh, um, we've been at the margin selling some of those stocks, um, and not seeing the pace of change that we would have liked from management of your average Japanese company. Um, but no doubt, if that reform can speed up, there's a lot of value in Japan.
1: How damaging do you think the Nissan cars going situation is, to uh, sort of corporate governance reputation in Japan? I
0: thought about it that way, but I'm not sure I would read it as a Japanese corporate governance scandal as much as, a, you know, it's an issue that you had this guy and CEO of two companies, a European and a Japanese company with a strange cross-shareholding. That's not just a Japanese um, corporate governance issue. And there has been that the, the government and the authorities are making slow progress on improving corporate governance standards in, in, in corporate Japan, just not that far Leaving Japan aside, Asia remains where there's just this natural economic growth you don't find in other parts of the world. The entrepreneurialism in China and India and Southeast Asia is just that so much more exciting. So we, we certainly expect to see continues, um good company stories and, and economic growth out of the region.
1: Oh, um, well, having and, recently um, been to the region, I will certainly attest to that that energy. What always strikes me about Southeast Asia is no one ever talks about the past. It's always about the future, where you spend time in Europe already in parts of the States, and we are obsessed with the past. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is um, very different. So I um, commend a recent article for a business on The Economist about uh, you know is the next century, the Asian one. Um, Simon, we're running out of time. Um, so thank you very much for that. Very clear. Let me just quickly um, wrap up. I think the headlines are... Um, continuing to move in the right direction in terms of uh, resolution of trade tension, Um, uh, although a lot of optimism around that uh, is priced in, particularly when it comes to uh, the U.S. market, perhaps. Um, Secondly, uh, I think a key theme from from, from you, and if I tie this also to what Azad is saying, is a potential opportunity emerging in Europe through the fact of it being under-owned and under a cloud of, of um, EU uncertainty, whichever dimension we're looking, Um, whilst perhaps the economic data uh, is likely to improve, that's what Azad would say, um, and aided and abetted by the stabilization stroke improvement that we are now already starting to see uh, in China. And so that could be a very interesting transmission mechanism. And because of the underowning of of Europe relative uh, to the US, uh, that is um, a different kind of opportunity set. And then finally, as you were just touching on, uh, the structural case that continues to um, uh, make Asia uh, attractive, and certainly from an emerging market standpoint more broadly, uh, that's a theme that's captured uh, very fully in the inescapable truths. Simon, with that, thank you very much indeed. Hugely appreciate your time, um, and we look forward to having you back on one of these calls in the near future. But for now, Operator, thank you very much. That concludes today's call. This now concludes our call. Thank you for attending. Participants, you may disconnect your lines.